0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Theology Without the Bullshit. I'm Derek Malott, and as always, with me tonight is my fabulous co-host, the Reverend Dr. Paul Capitz. Hey, Paul. Hey, Derek. And admittedly, we are re-recording all of this because we had some audio issues, and this intro has already been done once. I said some funny things, so imagine that there was some witty banter... To get the episode kicked off, we all giggled to ourselves, and now we're diving into the content of tonight's episode, which is going to be on atonement. So, Paul, why don't you go ahead and kick us off? Tell us uh, about atonement and what we'll be exploring tonight as it relates to atonement, which hitherto I always assumed was the physical state of my body after working out. Um, (laughs) But I guess it has theological implications.
1: Well, atonement is... A notion that's common in many, perhaps all religions, and it has to do with rectifying our relationship with the divine. In Christian theology, when we speak of the atonement, we're talking about the salvific significance of the death of Jesus, which traditionally is understood as the sacrifice on behalf of human sin that brought about atonement and thus reconciliation between god and humanity
0: and to be fair atonement is not specific to christianity it has its roots in other traditions and religions right throughout history
1: right right so in judaism even before christianity there were sacrifices prescribed for atonement if a pious jew had committed a sin and needed to be brought back into proper relationship with god that person could go to the temple and offer a sacrifice for that purpose and so that's the immediate background of the christian understanding of atonement that jesus death performed that function. Once and for all, for all humanity, in such a way that animal sacrifices in a temple are no longer necessary.
0: Hence the sacrificial lamb uh, that he has been called, right? Right. Yeah. Well, I think the lambs drew the short end of the stick uh, in that deal, but uh, Jesus stepped in and uh, saved the lambs and the humans. Uh huh. Uh-huh. So let's, <laughs> let's dig in more to that, huh?
1: Well, we're going to look tonight at two medieval theologians Anselm of Canterbury, whom we talked about the last time when we compared him with Thomas Aquinas on the question of how can we know that God exists and you'll recall that I think very highly of Anselm's ontological argument or at least one version of his ontological argument for the existence of God and I still think it's philosophically valid, though that's a minority position today but we're also going to look at peter abelard who was more or less a contemporary they lived in the 11th and 12th centuries both scholastic theologians that is they're both trying to apply reason to issues of theology anselm is very famous of course for believing that there was no issue in theology that could not be illuminated by the rigorous application of reason. As one of my teachers at the University of Chicago, David Tracy, said, Anselm was only interested in the most difficult theological questions. And what we see in his doctrine of the atonement is kind of a strange application of this principle, what Anselm wants to do in his doctrine of the atonement is prove that there had to be an atonement, that there had to be an incarnation of Christ. And we know this from purely logical considerations. And Often what we think of when we think of the Doctrine of Atonement in Western theology is the version of it that was formulated by Anselm. So we're going to look at that. It's, it's the classic Doctrine of the Atonement, if you will. And Abelard objects to it and gives what was seen as a very radical indeed almost heretical, alternative understanding in the Middle Ages, even though later theologians, including liberal Protestants in the 19th century, found Abelard's version far more congenial than the version given by Anselm.
0: Congenial is one way to put it. Yeah. (laughs) All right, so what does... uh... Yeah, you know, I think we all have understandings of atonement, and in our what minds, would you
1: say, what would you say? What is your understanding
0: of it? Let's just begin there. Well, you're really pressing me on how much I prepared for tonight's episode and how long it's been <laughs> since I've studied theology. But I was well, going to say, mean, what I do was, you think? What do you think
1: of when you? Let's just begin. What What do you? Think of what do you think people think of when they when they talk about the atonement?
0: Right. I mean, that's what I that's what I was saying is I think we all have this sort of classical Christian understanding of what atonement means, right? Jesus dying for our sins, you know, and that right. whole uh, sacrificial lamb component of it, right? That right. That's, that that sacrifice takes place once and for all, uh, all other sacrifices, so that humans are made right in the eyes of God through you know accepting Jesus as their Savior.
1: Right, but if you were to push that and ask yourself or ask others, why did there need to be a sacrifice in order to go back into right relationship with God? What would people say?
0: Well, are we going back to the fall of humanity and going back and as far to say that we're sinners because of our nature and you know God's assumption of the flesh? and subsequent crucifixion took the place of, I don't know. I, I'm not sure what the question is you're, trying to get out You're on the of cusp
1: of saying <laughs> it. You're on the cusp of saying <laughs> it.
0: Sanctification? Yes, it, <laughs> I don't know.
1: Well, here's, here's what I'm getting at. I think that even if people who are not aware of Anselm's formulation of the doctrine of the atonement pretty much agree with it in its basic outlines And that is to say that in some sense, sin cannot be dealt with properly simply by an act of forgiveness. There has to be some compensation for the wrong done. In other words, you have to make amends to use current language. Otherwise, it would just be cheap grace to employ the terminology of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Sure. And therefore, before God can receive human beings back into relationship with God, after they've broken that relationship through sin, God's justice has to be appeased. Some would say God's wrath has to be appeased. And that that's what we mean when we talk about an atonement or an atoning sacrifice, that someone or something pays the price for the penalty of sin, and that until that penalty is paid, God cannot forgive sinners. Is that familiar
0: to your way of thinking? I think you passed. Great job.
1: <laughs> okay. Okay. Anselm is not, of course, the first to articulate these ideas, but he put them in such a systematic, rational form that forever after, he's sort of the classic figure who is associated with this doctrine. When you read... Contemporary theologians criticizing the doctrine of the atonement, they usually refer to Anselm's formulation of it. So we're going to talk about that briefly, talk about Peter Abelard's objection to it, and then just try to sort out the issues.
0: Yeah, I'd be curious to know, just real quick, I mean, since we all have this sort of understanding of atonement because of its place in theological history— What were competing ideas about atonement that this formulation was required to clarify?
1: I don't know that there were a lot of competing... I mean, there may have been. I'm not aware of there having been a great controversy about this. I just think that... Anselm did such a brilliant job of articulating what he thought were what he called the necessary reasons why this had to happen the way it did, that it then became uh, that formulation of the doctrine that others had to take account of since then.
0: Got it. Okay. That makes sense. uh, There might've
1: been some big controversy going on in the middle ages, but since I haven't studied the middle ages in detail for a long time, I'm not, I'm not, aware of it.
0: Well, you just don't remember the events directly from your own eyewitness (laughs) experience. It's been a while. I'm not
1: that old yet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But let's go back to, before we talk about the Middle Ages and the formulation of the doctrine, let's go back to the origins of Christian theology and the death of Jesus. Okay, Because this is something that I have found it is hard to Get Christians to understand. Uh, in the first instance, uh, nobody thought that Jesus' death on the cross was a sacrifice for sin. And that's because Jesus' death on the cross was an execution for rebellion or sedition, sedition or right. some sort of political offense vis-a-vis the Roman Empire, right? Uh, What I'm saying is that Jesus wasn't slaughtered on an altar in a temple by a priest. So, what, what happened very early on in the history of Christianity, in fact, what made it possible for there to be a Christianity, was when somebody, and we don't really know who this was, said Jesus' death, though it was an execution by Roman soldiers, is theologically speaking to be understood as a sacrifice for Israel's sin and humanity's sin for that matter, that makes us right with God. And once you've said that, you have then said that Jesus' death was not a failure, it was not a tragedy, it it is the saving event. And from that point forward then, that death becomes proclaimed as the event by which human beings can be reconciled to God. And in the case of Christianity, it had the further effect of justifying a form of religion that abolished animal sacrifices, because there was no longer any need for other sacrifices once Jesus' own death had been interpreted as a once-and-for-all sacrifice, that is to say completely sufficient for all cases of human sin, past, present, and future, And these are the interpretations of the death of jesus that are already found in the earliest layers of the new testament so in our earliest documents such as in paul you already have this understanding of the death of jesus presupposed by paul that is to say paul heard this from somebody else he did not himself come up with this interpretation when paul became a christian He adopted this interpretation of Jesus' death theologically. And I've had such a difficult time trying to get uh, people in churches or people in seminary classrooms to understand this, that to say that the death of Jesus on the cross was a sacrifice is a secondary theological interpretation of an event which quite obviously was first and foremost a political execution. Of course. Now, I don't say that to debunk the idea that Jesus death was a sacrifice, but simply to talk about how this process, how this interpretation came about historically, by what process of reflection upon the death of Jesus. So you have to imagine that after the death of Jesus, his followers engaged in intense theological reflection about why Jesus died. And they're not just thinking in in the political terms, they're asking a theological question. What role did his death play in God's plan for Israel and humanity?
0: Mm -hmm. Okay? Yeah.
1: So, The reason why this is important to say is because I think what happened in the history of Christian tradition is that we forgot that to say that Jesus' death is a sacrifice is itself an interpretation of a historical event that was originally not a sacrifice at all. Okay? Yep. And I think that that's a clue to trying to figure out how we should appropriate this doctrine today for ourselves. So having said that, Anselm, being a good medieval theologian, reads the New Testament that assures him that the death of Jesus was a sacrifice for human sin. And so Anselm, being a reflective person, asks himself... Why was it necessary that Jesus had to die like that in order for God to be reconciled to sinful human beings? Wasn't there some other way that this could have happened?
0: It's a fair question.
1: And so Anselm comes up with what in his own mind is a perfectly rational answer to this question. And what he means by that is that even if you didn't know anything about Jesus and his death, but you understood what the major problem was that had to be solved, namely that there was a sinful humanity that had violated the justice of God, that an incarnation of a person who was divine into human form and who then sacrificed himself in this way would be the only logical answer to the problem posed by human sin and the justice of God. So Anselm explicitly says, I'm going to deduce the logical necessity of the Incarnation. as if i knew nothing about jesus he uses a latin phrase christo remoto which means putting christ aside for the moment (laughs) and so he proceeds to deduce that the son of god had to be incarnated for this reason because the human offense against the justice of god could only be recompensed for by humanity, since humanity is the guilty party here, who violated God's justice. So it it would have to be a human being who would pay the penalty for this breach. But since God is infinite, and God's justice therefore is infinite, the offense to God's justice is infinite and can never possibly be paid by a human being. It could only be paid by God.
0: It's an interesting paradox, isn't it? There's just as much yes. emphasis on the humanity of God for this atoning act as there is on the divinity of Jesus as the Christ.
1: Right, so there had to have been a God-man, if you will, right?
0: The mm-hmm.
1: uh, divine being in human form who pays the penalty as only the human being ought to pay the penalty but only as God can pay the penalty.
0: Well, it worked out perfectly then that it happened that way.
1: <laughs> I told you it's a very rationalistic approach. It sure
0: to is. It. Yeah, it absolutely is rationalistic. All right, Excuse I mean that me, makes I, sense.
1: I'm I'm sniffling tonight because we've had a fire in the ne- neighboring town and there's so much smoke coming our way that i've been sniffling ever since the fire so i i I apologize for that
0: i think our uh readers can forgive you and luckily a god man has taken your place (laughs) to forgive you of your offenses
1: okay okay now anselm i mean Anselm, um his
0: uh abelard abelard
1: Abelard, uh finds this very offensive (laughs) and he he um You know, and and the problem that Abelard puts his finger on is is also the problem that contemporary critics of the doctrine of the atonement have, and that is the idea that uh, God's justice could only be appeased by the by the suffering of an innocent human being, um, even if he is divine. Um, it it makes God. Uh, to such critics sound
0: kind of uh, nefarious malicious some some, some
1: sadistic something like that right? (laughs) sure um i've heard i've heard a feminist theologian describe it as divine child abuse
0: (laughs) well that's sure
1: yeah and um so so abelard wants to say instead that The cross is the revelation of God's self-sacrificial love for us. And he draws upon the statement in one of the gospels that greater love hath no one than he who lays down his life for his friends. And the, 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 the purpose of the crucifixion, therefore, is not so much to appease the justice of God, making it possible for God to forgive us, but to break our own hearts to turn us to repentance that we see how much god loves us that god would willingly suffer on our behalf for the purpose of melting our hearts the way that the that seeing the suffering of jesus does
0: it's definitely more compelling well i i mean i i, I find it that
1: way too but it, but it, it's not the classical doctrine and uh he, abelard was seriously criticized and and he continues to be criticized by the the so-called defenders of orthodoxy today so
0: and what what would those critics say with his assessment why is it so Um, problematic to them abelard's doctrine yes it doesn't go far enough in affirming the rational distinctions made by Anselm?
1: Well, again, I, I don't know. I haven't read a lot on this lately, but I think that the fundamental issue that's always at play in a doctrine of atonement like this is the relationship between the justice of God and the mercy of God or the grace of God. And I think that critics of Avalon would probably say that he's purchased the grace of God, the mercy of God at too great a cost of not taking seriously enough the gravity of sin as an offense against the justice of God.
0: Yeah, it did, so it didn't go far enough in recognizing the wrath of God, so to speak, or the justice I, I of God. I think so.
1: Right, right.
0: Which is interesting, is over time we've tried to move away from those concepts um, and try to disassociate wrath and anger um, because they seem contradictory with well, loving God.
1: Uh, we have to be careful here because, as I did some reading on this before we we uh, met tonight, and um, in his book on medieval theology, Jaroslav Pelikan makes it clear that for medieval theologians such as Anselm, wrath would be an inappropriate term for God anyway, because it's it's anthropomorphic and thus mythological. Since all these medieval theologians were influenced by Greek metaphysics, they all believed that God is impassable, that God doesn't have affect or emotion. So it's not as though God is really angry. That would be an unworthy conception of God, even for Anselm. And that's why he doesn't talk about appeasing the wrath of God. He talks about restoring honor to the justice of God. So you have more of, a, of an abstract notion here that the fundamental justice of the universe has been violated, um, which shows that Anselm's doctrine is already at a remove, I think, from the more concrete notions and images that you have in the Bible. I can see that. Um, but I think fundamentally the doctrine of atonement comes down to a question of uh, the relationship between justice and mercy. And before we criticize the doctrine overly much, I think we need to realize that we struggle with that issue in ourselves and in our own social life as a society. Um,
0: Let's say more about that.
1: what, What is required to forgive? Well, what I mean by that is that oftentimes the people who are most ready, and I'm not a defender of Anselm's doctrine, so don't misunderstand me, but the people who insist that God should be completely merciful are themselves usually the ones who, in human relations, insist upon justice.
0: <laughs> right? Sure. Yeah, no, um, that's true.
1: You know, they're, they don't want to... Uh, uh, forgive rapists or those who abuse children or oppress people. They want justice, <laughs> right? And, and and so I think if we think about that with respect to God, thinking about God's justice is not inappropriate. So, for example, when when I was trying to teach students to appreciate Luther's theology and the existential dilemma out of which Luther's theology arose, you know, that Luther asked himself, how can I find a gracious God who will forgive my sin? My students typically thought that the problem was that Luther had an angry, wrathful God. And, and what they were imagining was what was like some abusive father who can't bring his anger under control. Right, and, and I tried to explain to them that's not what Luther is is worried about. Luther is worried about justice. Luther is not saying this God is some out of control uh, rageaholic. I have broken. I have violated the moral justice of the universe and i know i'm guilty and deserve punishment and and now i'm asking if there's any mercy but my students my students couldn't find any middle ground between complete and, you know let you off the hook luther <laughs> pure grace cheap grace and this idea that any concern for justice was divine justice was uh, anything other than You know, uh, an image of God in in the image of some abusive father who you know kicked the dog when he got home from work at night, that kind of, and then slapped his wife around and hit hit his kids. Sure. And and uh, so I don't think you can quite understand the the issue in the doctrine of the atonement unless you have a sense that you've really offended God's justice and you're in the wrong.
0: I think you that's I, mean? I do, and I think it's a very interesting thought game to think about the relationship between mercy and justice,
1: right? Well that's my point. If if we think about it in human terms Exactly. Right. I mean we don't just let people off the hook.
0: No, and at what point has justice gone too far at the expense of mercy? And how well, far uh, has of course
1: that's that's a very important question. So, like, in the South African situation after apartheid, they had, I think they were called reconciliation commissions or something like that, mm-hmm. where they tried to work through the injustices of the past, but also keeping one eye on mercy
0: mm-hmm.
1: so that disjustice, so that the pursuit of justice did not descend into revenge. Right. Um so uh, it, I guess if I'm going to tip my hat to what Anselm is up to, it, it's not that I'm going to defend his theory to the nail at the literal level. But, but I, I think that grappling with this idea of the relationship between justice and mercy or grace is at the heart of what, This difficult doctrine is trying to get to, and somehow trying to interpret Jesus' death in relation to this, um, I guess you could say it's a struggle within God, between God's justice and God's mercy.
0: And I always think about, you know, the day after watching their teacher their leader crucified in one of the most excruciating the word excruciating itself it comes from the cross the yeah. cross right one of the yeah, most right. a, horrific horrific atrocious things you see somebody with was all that you had all your hope and, and and dreams in and what they were going to accomplish and to see right. them hanging from the cross and dying in front of you and imagining trying to make sense of what that means what does that mean right. theologically, and how do we right. have to reinterpret this now to make sense of the significance, right. the theological significance of right.
1: this? Right, right, exactly.
0: Can, can you imagine?
1: I can't. I really can't. And and it was that interpretation of Jesus' death as salvific because atoning that's what enabled those first disciples to find existential meaning in his death and then to find new life new hope after that horrific event if it had just stopped at it was an execution there would have been no christianity
0: no no of course not he would have been a martyr um right like so many of the other forgotten martyrs of history Sure,
1: of course yeah right
0: that's that's wild so uh what happened to abelard then was he just ostracized excommunicated well, abelard
1: had his own problems elsewhere he uh abelard was actually castrated by um uh his opponents uh he had this um love affair and um so he he was known for uh that horrible
0: outcome. Okay, well, who did he have a love affair with? Uh, What are the circumstances there that would lead to castration? It must have been... You you can look that up, right? We don't have to talk about that on the podcast. No, I'm curious. I think this is I'm sure you are curious,
1: but I am not... (laughs) Like,
0: who did he piss off is my question. Well, again, you'll have
1: to read the history books to find out.
0: All right, stay tuned, folks. I'm going to follow up this episode with a deep (laughs) exploration of the reasons behind Abelard's castration. All right, so... Did he have any other contributions in theologically that are worth noting, or is it primarily understood through this disagreement with Anselm?
1: Well, I'm you know, I mean he was a very bright guy and and um sure he, he made all sorts of other contributions, but I mean they're not they're not epoch making in the in the historical theological sense. I mean, he he is not regarded as a being of the same intellectual stature as
0: Anselm is. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm
0: okay so 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 what happens from here well then we have the reformation are we already there after some, this huh are we already there after this
1: it depends on where you want to go with the podcast <laughs> no i just our, can't believe people that people want it. yeah i
0: just can't well, believe we're, we're in the middle ages yeah uh, i suppose um well, why don't we spend the rest of tonight then setting the scene for what will be the conversation we have um, starting with Martin Luther next episode, I suppose. What are your thoughts okay. on that? sure.
1: Um, that's complicated because there's a lot of things that led up to the Reformation in the 16th century. And one of those is a shift in the basic way of formulating the religious question. And that is, as I just said a minute ago, given that I deserve damnation as a sinner, how can I find a God who will forgive me? And that's Luther's formulation of the existential problem. And that also reflects a loss of faith in the medieval church's traditional answer to the problems faced by the sinner in and through the church's penitential system. And so Luther is really formulating in his question and and in the answer that he will eventually give to that question, a completely new way of thinking about Christian faith. But Luther wasn't The only person in the late Middle Ages who was formulating a question like that, Julian of Norwich, who uh, was in England before Luther, articulates a very similar existential dilemma that she solves through her appeal to a mystical vision that also gave her a different understanding of Christian faith than that which was found in the Roman Catholic Church at the time. And she's very nervous because she understands the heretical implications of the mystical vision that was given her. And so at the same time that she's trying to explain the contents of it, she's simultaneously trying to apologize for the fact that She's merely a woman and uneducated and all the rest so as to detract attention away from her. She's always protesting that she has no desire to teach anything other than what the church officially teaches. So she's somewhat at odds with herself because the clear direction of her mystical vision moves in one direction even though she tries to give an interpretation of it, put a spin on it that doesn't lead her down the road to heresy. But she's a striking illustration of the same anxiety that late medieval people had about their salvation in relation to God that we find in Martin Luther. And there are striking formal parallels to the kind of answer she gives uh, And that that Luther gives, both of which both of which bypass the traditional Roman Catholic system of mediation through the sacraments.
0: Yeah, as we'll as we'll um, unpack in the next episode, what is her? Do you know what her vision is? Off chance is it?
1: Well, yeah, she her vision consists solely in the assurance that God is gracious, Hmm. that God is merciful, which is basically what Luther's so-called rediscovery of the gospel of the new testament is that god forgives sinners that's the message of the gospel
0: well and without going into too much detail i mean you can see how that would be perceived as a threat right as threatening to orthodoxy if you're calling into question the sacraments right penance right right, some of these theological traditions that uh well, yeah, we're getting into <laughs> Martin's territory. Were there any other are there any other examples of that anxiety or those sorts of questions?
1: Uh, well, I, I don't think that Julian or Luther would have gotten the attention they received from their followers had they been speaking only for themselves as individuals. Oh, that's so, fair. Yeah. So, I mean, the fact that they were influential suggests that what they articulated about themselves spoke to others of their own experience who were, were less articulate in their ability to state what was going on with them i mean when when you hear or read someone who makes sense to you about what's going on in your own life you you cling to it and grab onto it because they've given you words to describe yourself that you yourself hadn't been able to come up with, right? Yeah. So, so I think that Julian and Luther illustrate that there were a lot of people in the late Middle Ages who were asking a question that the Church couldn't answer anymore. Yeah. And therefore, they're looking for new, new religious ideas that will answer the anxiety of. The age. And this is compounded by the fact that for a few centuries now, there had been serious efforts to reform the Catholic Church, all of which failed. And, and so you, 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 you couple this new articulation of an existential dilemma that the Church's theology isn't able to answer with Uh, a long history of failure to reform the church such that it meets the actual pastoral needs of the people and and you've got a situation there that's ready for um ferment (laughs) to put it mildly right
0: sure that makes sense um Okay, well, we don't have to go into much more detail about that as we're about to dive into Luther in the next episode. But okay. I, do, I do have a question for you, just from yeah. a pastoral standpoint. Yeah. How do you, as a pastor, talk about Anselm and Atonement? Have you written any sermons about that? I mean, what's your... No, no, no.
1: I, I. Well, first of all, I would never talk in a sermon about Anselm. I would never... I mean, a sermon is not a lecture. So... Uh, I mean my my congregations never heard of Anselm for the most part as, as far as I know um, but I have to interpret New Testament texts and um, when when I was uh, trying to preach on Good Friday uh, this past spring I um, it's a it's a hard it's a hard thing for me to uh, deal with in a in a uh, theologically helpful way. Mostly because I don't want to reinforce kind of the the standard belief that unless Jesus had died on the cross, God could never have forgiven us. I don't believe that. I mean, just look at the Old Testament. God's forgiving people all the time. In the in the Psalms, you see. You know, uh, I, I think, and that's why I stress that it's very important that we understand how these doctrines arose historically, so that we don't mistakenly think they fell from the sky, right? And, and that these doctrines are attempts to interpret. Our religious experience, and, and and to confuse those doctrines as though they themselves are the objects of our faith, is, I think, to make the fundamental mistake. So, so what I tried to do, um, I, I think Abelard is fundamentally right, more so than Ab. Uh, Avalard is fundamentally right more so than the Anselm, and here's why. Because if you look at a couple of crucial, and and actually I learned this from reading John Calvin. So, So I'm going to be speaking on behalf of John Calvin here, who's another Protestant reformer, second only to Martin Luther in the 16th century. We tend to believe that the New Testament message is this if there hadn't been Jesus sacrifice on the cross an angry god could never have forgiven us for our sin right i think that sends a profoundly mixed message to people
0: sure
1: and 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 therefore i don't want to perpetuate that um notwithstanding what i just said about the tension between god's justice and god's mercy okay
0: sure
1: but If you look at certain crucial passages in the New Testament, um, I'm thinking of one in Paul and one in John, and you you analyze the logic of those verses carefully, you will see that what the New Testament is affirming is the exact opposite of what that traditional doctrine of atonement is saying. So let me just give you an example. The, The first is the famous verse John 3:16 For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son So if you ask what is the reason why God sent Jesus into the world it's because God loved the world of sinners Mhm See what I mean? That's the motivation for the whole Christ event is the divine love for sinners making possible whatever reconciliation needed to be accomplished. In other words, God is not the one who needs to be reconciled there. It's humanity Mm -hmm. because God already loves the sinful humanity before Jesus came into the world. Do you you see how a, a clear analysis of that verse undoes that traditional logic
0: yeah i mean it makes sense what you're saying
1: then let's look at look let's look at the famous verse from second corinthians god was in christ reconciling the world to himself it's not that christ was reconciling god to the world Mm -hmm. god was reconciling the world to himself god's the active agent yeah and we are the ones who need to be reconciled. The, tr- the problem with the traditional doctrine of the atonement, in other words, is that, it, is that it leads you to believe that God cannot be reconciled to us apart from this death on the cross. Mm-hmm. God cannot love us until his, his honor or his justice has been appeased or satisfied by Jesus' death.
0: But it's already see, occurring. And, yeah, it's it's you're saying that that's not true because it's already occurred before the fact. Like God is
1: right. So so I mean I, I I mean there may be other verses in the New Testament that move in the other direction, and that's what Calvin Calvin has a problem with. Now remember, Calvin is these one of these Bible alone guys, right? <laughs> right. He wants to go back to the Bible. That's his chief authority. But Calvin has problems with the literal sense of some New Testament passages, which seem to imply that God could not be reconciled to humanity apart from the death of Jesus. But theologically, Calvin already believes in his own mind that can't possibly be the case. Mm -hmm. Because then you're saying something outside of God is what makes it possible for God to reconcile to be reconciled to sinful humanity, and, and Calvin finds that to be an inadequate doctrine of God; hence, he has to engage in what Rudolf Bultmann later called "Zach critique," criticizing what the Bible means on the base, uh, what the Bible says on the basis of what he thinks it really means. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? In other words, in, in spite of it, Calvin's commitment to the literal sense of what the Bible says, and the Bible being his absolute authority. There are passages in the New Testament on the death of Jesus that Calvin cannot accept at their face value because they seem to teach a misguided understanding of God.
0: Which means you have to go beyond what it says and interpret what it means.
1: Right, right. Yeah. No, I, I yeah. get that. So so but but I mean that really moves in the direction more of Abelard than of Anselm. Yeah, and um, Jaroslav Pelikan in his book on the who, who's a you know a church historian, I, I recommend his five-volume history of dogma if you if you want all the details on this stuff. But Jaroslav Pelikan in his volume on the Reformation makes a very interesting statement that that the reinterpretation of Christian faith that, that Luther and Calvin gave actually undermines Anselm's doctrine of the atonement. And um, that's something that most Protestants haven't thought seriously enough about in their attachment to the doctrine of the atonement as formulated by Anselm.
0: Why don't we start off next week's episode talking about what he... I mean, if you've got any thoughts about how does that undermine the... Anselm's doctrine? doctrine? Sure, all
1: right. Sure, we can, we can pick that up again.
0: Yeah, I think we should start next week with talking okay. about how... All right. That undermines it, and then we can use that as a jumping off point into Luther. Okay,
1: good. All right,
0: I like that. Well, uh, we're at time here, everyone. So thanks for for joining us, and as always, as always, submit your questions to us on Facebook. We'll be happy to bring them up during our next uh, or subsequent episodes. Paul, thanks so much. You uh, stay well out there in the wildfires.
1: Okay. Good night, everyone. Thanks,
0: Derek. Take care, everyone. Bye.